it has to do with uh, the philosophy that one takes in running a business. Uh, be humble, or it's one of our core values. And so uh, part of humility is saying uh, there's a lot that I don't know. And always having a passion and seeking out new information. Unending curiosity is another one of our values. So I think that uh, one of the reasons that CA has been successful is that we have a group of team members who are constantly trying to ask questions, understand more, and to constantly get feedback. So uh, I think you know, answer this question. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Andy Klump. Andy, thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so for people who don't know about CEA, can you tell us about what you do? Yes, uh, Clean Energy Associates is an engineering services firm that provides technical advisory support to end owners of solar and storage assets. Uh, we provide upstream quality assurance and supply chain expertise and also support clients as they deploy solar and storage solutions in different parts of the world. Okay, so if we had to explain that to my mom, what does that mean? We help people buy equipment. We help them uh, monitor as the equipment gets manufactured. And then we make sure the equipment is installed properly by overseeing the folks who are actually doing the work in the field. Um, so I, I was excited for this interview, you know, in the last few months since we've been hanging out. It's been kind of fun to hear uh, about your story from, you know, from Harvard Business School, over in China, ups and downs, public companies, this exciting stuff, to having your own company. Um, what's something that people who haven't operated company in a foreign country, specifically one like China, might not guess? So China has a, a lot of uh, unusual practices, I would say, and uh, there's, there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of uh, variability. And when I first started off my, my business, there were very high highs and very low lows. And so uh, I had only been in China for several years up to that point. So I would say to start a business in China requires a, a lot of uh, gumption, if you will, uh, and a lot of uh, ability to overcome obstacles more so than, and I would say that's a, a trait, overcoming obstacles is a trait for all entrepreneurs, but I would say particularly in China, there's more variability than one would have otherwise. So there's a saying in China, you see things every day that you don't see every day. And I think that's, that, that's very true. Sure. So um, if you had advice for other entrepreneurs or, you know, maybe somebody leading innovation team in a corporate and they're, they're venturing into China and they're about to see things that they're not used to seeing, um, what kind of advice would you have? My advice would be make sure you can differentiate your value proposition versus anyone else who is uh, from that country. And I, I would say I'll, to make it more specific, I'll say, when I started my path in China, in, even before I became an entrepreneur, I took a job where I was selling, uh, in, working in sales, but I was selling commodity products to the Chinese. I was not very differentiated. I thought I was working for a company that appreciated my skills, but it turns out they really didn't. And I realized it wasn't a long-term place for me. So when I set up my business, uh, at that time, I'd advanced several years. I'd actually worked for a Chinese solar manufacturer. I had a skill set that was different in an emerging market. 
of solar, which did not have a lot of manufacturing at the time. And so my skill set was somewhat unique and differentiated. And then I set up a business around my desire to stay in China and provide a need that was not uh, easily met by just anyone who is uh, Chinese or uh, who didn't have my unique set of circumstances. So I, I want to talk more about this in a minute. J just before we go on, can you talk about the ups and downs and, and kind of when, you know, Chinese solar had kind of had its moment there and then when you got to ring the bell? Yes, yeah, so uh, I, you're alluding to the fact that I was uh, at an early stage of my career. I was able to be uh, a part of a company that succeeded in listing in the New York Stock Exchange. Um, I, I technically, What was their symbol? The, the symbol was a TSL, and uh, Trina Solar Limited at the time uh, was, uh, had re received a recapitalization from three private equity investors in, you know, in early 2006, uh, and they were trying to chase the, a giant wave of momentum that was led in 2005 by SunTech Power, which was the first Chinese solar company to go public and the CEO of which uh, became the richest man in China for several years. And so he was a multi-billionaire. Everyone else wanted to replicate that success. And so Trina and dozens of other companies tried to chase that IPO uh, growth, growth tidal wave, if you will. And so Trina was fortunate that we had the right team, we had the right uh, positioning with investors, and we were able to succeed with IPO uh, in December of 2006, midway through that race. But effectively, in that 12-month window, there were about 10 Chinese solar companies that went public, and so uh, Trina was uh, was part of that group. So it was uh, it was definitely an up and down experience. Uh, I still remember my first uh, you know few weeks in the company. Uh, I was I was really the only. Uh, Westerner who was uh, was really uh, you know working in the company and so yeah, it was a, it definitely a, a very company building a very humbling experience doing everything from uh, trying to arrange uh, you know trying to upgrade the website from being all Chinese to just basic English uh, trying to make sure to help customers uh, orient basic investors who are coming through and uh, and and really. Uh, accidentally uh, painting the outside of the building when I was not authorized to do so. <laughs> so there's all sorts of, of kind of funny stories that happened those first few months, but uh, it was uh, it was really definitely wearing a lot of different hats. And so when, you know, at the peak, when, you know, you guys go public, when the shares are way up, what, what did the market cap get to at the top? Do you at know? At the peak, Trina's market cap was about $2 billion. Yeah. So the company uh, went public around a $400 million uh, market cap uh, it, within a, a matter of weeks, a few weeks, because we listed right before the uh, the end of the year when most of the fund managers were already uh, heading out to holiday. They didn't even have time to build a model. And so it wasn't until the first or second week in July or January that most folks were coming back. They started to do their homework. And then quickly, a stock had a, a massive uptick. And so it tripled in a matter of a few weeks. And uh, then there was a lot of hedge fund activity that led to a lot of volatility. Uh, but over time, the company performed well and, and had a peak valuation of about $2 billion. So coming off that experience, when you're trying to build your own company to have the lifestyle you want to have and to be able to stay in China, how many years have you been in China now? Uh, now it's been 17. Okay. So having just been through that experience, how did that shape your decisions about what you did and didn't want to do? So I really was passionate about solar. I had no solar background up to that point in time, but loved everything about the industry. I loved the, the mission of it. Uh, I loved the people who were involved. Uh, I loved the fact it was going through high growth. And I also loved the fact that we are really helping a whole category of companies in China learn how to internationalize. 
And that was really my long-term plan when I first went to China, was really to first start getting some experience with multinationals uh, and then learning the language, more importantly, learning the culture. But then eventually, my, my ultimate goal is to help Chinese companies start to go global. And so uh, being inside Trina and being a, the first non-Chinese member of the executive management team, I was really able to learn and experience things I'd never seen or experienced before. And that was, I think, very helpful for me. Now, I fast forward a couple of years, um, I also was very fortunate that I'd met my, uh, my wife at the time, but at the time she was my fiance, and so I was smart enough to propose to her right before I started with the company. But uh, going, uh, going into a, a long-term relationship and telling that uh, your life partner that you're going to be away for 90% of the time wasn't a great plan for success. So uh, she was patient the first year uh, because uh, we were planning for the wedding. She was patient the first year of, her, of uh, after our wedding, but after two years, I decided to stay married to her and not the company. So going through all different types of volatility but making a lot of personal sacrifices, I said I wanted to kind of forge my own path. And so I went down the path of setting up uh, Clean Energy Associates, really to design a business around the lifestyle I wanted to lead, which was staying in China, but still having a little more control and autonomy over my schedule, spending some time with my wife, and then building off the industry I was passionate about. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just thinking about all this, and I'm, I think a, a question, I, if, um, if I think about all the things you've accomplished, and you got, how many staff are you now? Uh, our team is up to 125 professionals in 11 countries. And and you really have done something special where, you know, people who really care about the quality of these solar farms and the assets and all and the storage and all this, they are seeking you out. You're able to navigate kind of the east and the west. Can you talk about your growth rate in the, maybe in the last couple of years? Yeah, so the last uh, two plus years, we've grown at 60 plus percent. Uh, but you know, if I look over the last uh, seven, eight years of our business, we've grown at, at more than you know, 30% as a compound annual growth rate. And so there's so many entrepreneurs and folks that would like that. And there's so much advice in the books and the business articles, and sometimes it all blends together. If you had to pull it down to just a couple of key principles for somebody who's saying, man, we are not getting the growth I would like to get. What's something I can learn from Andy? What does Andy attribute that to? So I think the first uh, key point was really understanding the need of the end customer. And I was uh, personally responsible for all the sales at the start of the company. And I was in touch with the customer, but not fully grasping where our value proposition was was best suited. And so uh, one piece of advice I'd give to someone is spend as much time with the customer, really understand their pain points, and help identify clearly how you can create value for them and do that on a repeat basis and then teach others how to do that more quickly. I ended up performing a lot of the work that I sold myself. I solved a lot of problems, but I didn't build a scalable platform until I really learned how to create a system and process uh, around the, the ecosystem we were trying to drive. I think the second key point is the importance of building a team and particularly having a clear culture with a clearly defined set of values that motivates and excites the team and also to build those core values with the team and to do that in a, uh, in a repeatable way that allows a scale. And I'd say the third key point is to find a coach. I uh, had the good fortune of uh, being able to, you know, to build the company organically. Uh, I did not have taken any outside capital and it was rough going the first uh, several years. In fact, first five years, uh, we never really had a whole lot of extra money, but what I then discovered over time is that I could not, I had limitations in terms of what I could do, 
But if I was able to have the right mentor and the right executive coach, uh, together we could accomplish a lot more. And I think that through that process, particularly the last four years of working with an executive coach, uh, we've been able to scale and grow the company substantially more than we had the first uh, eight years. That's great. Um, let, let's pick this apart a little bit. Um, so <clears throat> this idea of listening to our customers, really dig into their world, really learn their pain point. We've all been told this. And then in general, most of us do that a bit at first. We get some success and then we stop doing more of it. And we kind of rely on our assumptions that we pretty much know what they want. Um, when you think about going that extra mile or staying hungry when it comes to the listening, to the really diving into their world, any thoughts on that versus just patting ourselves on the back of I'm a good listener? I, I, I'm an expert at this industry. I know, what they, I know what my clients want, Andy. So one of the practices that we adopt at Clean Energy Associates is all uh, the executive team uh, on a regular basis. And I take this on myself on a weekly basis, but other executives do this every either twice a month or on a monthly basis. Uh, all of us spend time specifically talking to customers and understanding what are the key business trends that they have. What is their experience in the market? What keeps them up at night? What is their experience like at CA? And how do they think about us relative to our comp competition? So our practice of going about this uh, hasn't been as strong uh, histor you know, historically, but I will say up until the time I was the head of sales, uh, the first six, seven, eight years of the business, I was constantly doing this indirectly. And then over time, as we started to scale up a leadership team and I hired someone to, to lead the sales function, I then stepped back. I wasn't in touch with the customer as much, but we've used this routine to constantly get customer feedback, to understand what's going on in the market and how we can react to key themes that are, are coming out of their customers. And there is not a single session that goes by without learning something. And that's what's extremely important is to take that feedback and give that uh, and brainstorm further with our leadership team. How do we improve? How do we continue to innovate? Uh, that process is an ongoing, continuous basis. And I look for times when we didn't have as much success or we had kind of entered a, a period of, of, of lackluster growth. It was because we were not as connected to the, the customer. You know, I think about that. And it's such a simple concept, essentially, there, right? Why do you think that so many of us... Um, don't you know that we we pat ourselves on the back of I already did that I know now I don't need to do it again or that that um I don't know it seems like we have like a draw or a tendency to pat ourselves on the back for how much we know instead of um taking that humble role that you're talking about of of continually looking for what we don't know I think part of it has to do with uh the philosophy that one takes in running a business uh, be humble or it's one of our core values and so uh, part of humility is saying uh, there's a lot that I don't know and always having a passion and, and seeking out new information on any curiosity is another one of our values. So I think that uh, one of the reasons that CA has been successful is that we have a group of team members who are constantly trying to ask questions, understand more and to constantly get feedback. So uh, I think, you know, in answer to your question, there's there's various times where we can have success and maybe due to a variety of factors. And I will definitely say there's times where I've had the wind at, at my back or at the, the company's back and we've had success. Maybe we didn't rightly deserve. But when we stopped asking those questions of the customer and really getting ongoing feedback, that's when we became misaligned. So it is easier to become somewhat complacent, uh, to rest on success 
And I've also experienced times where, you know, we grew to, you know, from, from 10 to 20 and then from, you know, 20 to 35 and then uh, to 50, you know, hit 50 and then 60. And there are different times where we hit plateaus uh, within the company, but it's very easy to get lost in a whole host of different fires that happen or constantly be, you know, problem solving and brainstorming various issues that are internal. But if you take that eye off the customer, if you don't continuously look externally, then that's when you're, you're subject to, to potentially losing your direction, losing your way. And that's why we try to institutionalize this approach of constantly getting customer feedback. And so even though I uh, reside within a headquarters that's in a different country in China, where most of our customers are international, I still uh, frequently take trips to customers to visit with uh, our, our, core, uh, our core partners in, in different trade shows. And I try to do that on a global basis. So I see different customer uh, perspectives and feedback at different points of the year. That's what's extremely important uh, for me to do and for others. And so once again, we have these kind of four question surveys, if you will, that we do uh, by phone uh, or video uh, if I can travel, but it's just important to institutionalize that process. There's a, there's a set four questions. Yes. Yeah, so there are, uh, we've, we follow the philosophy uh, of I like to call it the, the Bible of uh, high growth companies, but uh, scaling up by Bern Harnish. And so uh, in this book, it documents, you know, four different questions, but it's effectively asking the same things I just mentioned. What's going on in the industry? You know, what keeps you up at night? What do you think of our, of our business and how do you rank us versus our, our competitors? So those are the, the basic premise of the questions we ask. And it's about being able to take the discipline and continue to do that, even when a lot of other things are going on that are distracting or keeping us away from the customer. I love it. Um, and just quickly, remind me, how many, con- how many countries do you have staff in and how many countries do you have clients in? We have, uh, we have a, a team of uh, in 11 countries right now. So we, have, we don't have physical offices in all those countries. Uh, we just have a physical office in a handful, but uh, we have teams that are working in, in 11 countries uh, in, on a permanent basis. There are teams, team members that travel to many more countries beyond that. And we've been in uh, completed factory audits and, and visits in various parts of the supply chain over uh, a couple dozen uh, you know, countries. But our clients, uh, we have clients who are either from or have client projects in 56 countries to date. So we are a very global company. Uh, we've worked across all major continents and we continue to grow and expand because our clients expand. So while we may not necessarily have to travel to uh, the, the deepest uh, you know, regions in, uh, in, in, in Central Africa or elsewhere, uh, our clients sometimes do have projects and, and markets that uh, we don't travel to. But the work that we do is helping projects uh, be deployed. And that's, that's part of our, our long-term uh, big, hairy, audacious goal is, is to help uh, all of our clients and partners deploy solar in every country worldwide. And so solar and storage is a technology that can be deployed in every country. So we track our progress towards our uh, 25-year BHAG. Uh, and right, right, right now we're roughly at, uh, at 28, uh, 28% of the way. Well, and maybe this is a good uh, question. I know we're about out of time for the first half of the interview here. But um, being so deep in the space, um, what's something about the future of solar that maybe the rest of us who aren't living and breathing it every day don't realize is on its way? So it's common knowledge that uh, solar is a, an emerging technology. Many uh, in many parts of the world, uh, they've not embraced solar. But uh, the reality is the costs have come down dramatically. If I look at where I joined the industry uh, 14 years ago in 2006, uh, the industry has grown by roughly 90x. 
So uh, literally 90 times growth in a period of time. And the cost came down uh, on a per watt basis, which is the common metric of measurement for the production units, uh, from a price of uh, at the peak of $4.75 per watt. It now comes down to a, a cost, production cost of less than 20 cents a watt. So 95 plus percent cost reduction on the core components of modules. But the, a lot of the other components have also come down in cost, but also the installation costs have come down dramatically. So solar is more cost effective than many other forms of energy. And one can compare solar to, uh, to coal, to, uh, you know, to wind, to nuclear. And once again, you can have various cost analysis, but there's a lot of third parties who will do this analysis, uh, such as Lazard's uh, famous LCOE analysis. And the level, localized cost of, of, of energy is lower in solar than is in many other regions. Obviously, it's dependent on uh, radiation and the amount of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of solar that's uh, available in that region. But once again, uh, the cost means that the market opportunity is open up much to a much greater market potential than ever before. So we will see solar as a mainstream part of our energy supply and the double-digit percentages uh, on a global basis within the next decade. And in your mind, how might that change life for people? Or how might that change the way someone in business might want to think about their future or, or what effect might someone think about for their business in, in various industries or what does it make you think about? Well, we can think about this trend on a global basis and it's effectively a democratization of energy. And when energy no longer is generated by utility that sits up on a, a, a location that's far away and that's uh, generating uh, energy that's uh, emitting CO2 into the, uh, into the atmosphere or is a higher cost of power, all of a sudden, a, a, a small-scale solar developer in many regions around the world can now all, all of a sudden afford and, uh, you know, and actually finance a project that has a payback that could be less than four or five years. Then all of a sudden, you see a massive proliferation of solar. Now, in many regions of the emerging world, getting that financing is the challenge. But if you look at many uh, regions of uh, you know, very mature markets in the United States, uh, you know, elsewhere in Europe, there are many places where all of a sudden one doesn't have to rely on subsidies. They can re re just rely on the core economics and project finance mechanisms to, you know, to launch a solar farm. That's, uh, that's very compelling. There still are tax incentives and other uh, mechanisms that support the more rapid payback. So a lot of developers still use uh, these schemes, but there is far more uh, outlook, uh, I'd say you know, far more opportunity than ever before to deploy solar plus storage together in a combined system that uh, is cost-effective and can no longer be relying on subsidies. Okay, so what I'm getting out of that is, people, <clears throat> there's going to be a lot more independent power producers, these power, in, independent power production companies, they're going to be disrupting utility companies, and you should figure out how to serve these people because they're going to start making some money. That is, uh, that's another way to put it, yes. Um, <laughs> and once again, your average, uh, your average person may not necessarily have the ability to... Uh, become an independent power producer and, uh, and, and yeah, maybe up. they can sell their accounting to them. Maybe they can sell their. A absolutely. So once again, there's, there's a high growth uh, industry that uh, one can work on as a services sector. So we see many companies in many sectors are now uh, working with, with renewable energy. We see many corporates going mainstream and announcing uh, plans to be hundred uh, you know, percent uh, supporting uh, renewable energy and a lot of this is, is happening independent of, of the politics of the day. Once again, uh, solar is a bipartisan issue. So everyone sees the need for energy independence. 
uh, for less reliance on uh, you know expensive uh, sources of, of fuel that emit carbon dioxide in the air. So there are many different sources that support the industry, and I think that's one of the exciting parts of uh, of the sector. That's fun. Okay, well, everybody, please tune into part two. We're going to keep asking Andy about taking over the world.